0: I'm Tom Baker, you're listening to Law & Gospel on this Monday, June the 10th, in the year of our Lord, 2019. What a time of the year. We had Lent for a period of time, concluding with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, and then we went into the Easter season, and we have, during that time, Ascension and Pentecost, and we still have a high festival to do called Holy Trinity Sunday. In fact, I have done a study on the Holy Trinity on the basis of the Athanasian Creed. It was one of my worst sermons. One of your worst sermons? What do you mean by that? Well, what I did, it was a two-week sermon on the Athanasian Creed, and I went through every phrase and explained it on the basis of the Bible. And I even have a paper that I put together for that. By the way, if anybody's interested in receiving a free copy through email, just email me at longgospel at longgospel101.com, and I'll send it to you. In fact, at the congregations I'll be uh, hopefully taking care of this week, we'll be doing that during a Bible study. And in regard to this week, I'm on assignment on Tuesday and Wednesday, but still tune in because Mark Smith and I have a repeat broadcast of a hymn that we have done three years ago for Trinity Sunday. And then on Wednesday, I actually put together a continuation of the Bible study that we do on Wednesdays, 1 Corinthians 14. We only got halfway through the chapter. We're going to finish that chapter on Wednesday. And God willing, I should be back by Thursday. So what are we going to do on Holy Trinity? It's got readings from Proverbs 8, Acts 2, and John 8. The one I've chosen to do is Acts chapter 2. It begins with one verse, or I should say, Half of a verse. This is the day of Pentecost, and it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now, eleven? I thought there were twelve apostles. Well, remember, Judas committed suicide, and then they did replace Judas with another apostle that's talked about in Acts chapter 1. And that individual was named Matthias. And so the they actually cast lots for him. Uh, last time in the Bible that they cast lots to find out what the will of the Lord was. And he was numbered, Matthias it says, last verse of chapter 1, with the 11 apostles. So it's not just the 12 apostles that were there at Pentecost. Mary was there, other women, and a number of individuals who received the gift of speaking in known foreign languages. And that's what we're gonna talk more about on Wednesday. But we go from Peter talking to the people down to verse 22. Men of Israel Hear these words. Now, I find that interesting because there were a lot of people there who were not Israelites. In fact, if you take a look at chapter 2, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, and then verse 11 is interesting, both Jews and proselytes. What's a proselyte? It is a Gentile who converted over to the Jewish faith. And then Cretans and Arabians. Now, obviously, they're not of the original Israel, but when Peter is speaking, he refers to them men of Israel. So it kind of reminds me of in Romans uh, chapter 9 where Paul makes not all Israel is of Israel. What is he talking about? Well, there's the Israel of faith that comes from, of course, Isaiah. And then there's just the Israel who can trace their lineage back to Abraham, but they do not have faith. And that's the point that he's making. So right now, the Holy Christian Church, by God, is considered to be Israel. So after addressing men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. So that's the name the angel gave to Mary. And Jesus, of course, was raised in Nazareth. His father was a carpenter there. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, this is really important because the mighty signs and wonders were often misinterpreted by the people who experienced them. I, I'm thinking like the feeding of the 5,000. What happened there is they missed the sign, Jesus says later, and they thought he was a bread king. And so they were following him. And I think that's kind of the feeling also of the majority of folks who followed him on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were thinking he was coming to restore Israel to its former grandeur, get rid of the Romans, etc. And they were astonished when on Saturday he was in the grave. There was just something they could not understand. But what happens after Pentecost is that people are helped to understand. Why Jesus went through the crucifixion, uh, the death in the grave, and the resurrection. It's kind of important that pastors need to remember that we have a lot of knowledge that is not secondhand to lay people in the pew. And therefore, when we use words or have concepts in our mind, we need to explain what we are talking about. At any rate, Jesus was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The signs are not for unbelievers. Remember the Pharisees who were unbelievers, many of them, they knew that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead It wasn't that they denied it occurred. They just thought it was a trick of Beelzebub. And so they weren't going to be listening to this carpenter from Nazareth. And so what happens after Pentecost, people begin to recognize that the signs had a purpose. They were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning how you will know who the Messiah is. The deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the mute will speak, people will rise from the dead. So that's the purpose of the signs for believers looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And remember, the disciples of John the baptizer, are, are you the one Jesus or are we waiting for someone else? And he quotes from the Old Testament What he is doing in these works. Now, uh, Peter continues, verse 23 of Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. You see, God is God. And one of the attributes he has is he is not confined to the present. He can be in the past, he can be in the future, as well as in the present. And foreknowledge means that he's aware of what is going to be happening in the world ahead of time. When was this definite plan that was made in regard to Jesus? It occurred before the foundation of the world. If you take a look at Ephesians and other passages, you'll see that the Holy Trinity had decided before the foundation of the world that though they were going to create human beings, put them in the Garden of Eden, they were going to sin. And therefore, the second person of the Trinity, namely Jesus, would become flesh in order to pay the punishment for our sin. So, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan. Now, the term delivered up is a technical term. He was delivered up to Pontius Pilate. It's kind of like turning over a criminal. So, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, this is a wonderful verse to show us that there's nothing that happens in your life that God is not in charge of that he is not knowledgeable about. And and that's why we can be sure that we are saved through Jesus Christ. Anyway, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So... What if he's talking to people who are believers? Did they do the crucifixion? In essence, my sin was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. Killed by the hands of lawless men. Remember Pontius Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with him. And he washes his hands. God knew this. He didn't force, this is very important, he didn't force Pontius Pilate to make this decision. He even had a dream for Pontius Pilate's wife. Said, you know, be careful with this man. But he ignored that. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The pangs of death would mean rotting away in a tomb, in a grave. But it was not possible for God to be held by it. And then he quotes David in verse 25. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now, that's a tremendous psalm. And some time ago, I was talking about how all the psalms are in reality, though written by David and others, they're prayers of Jesus. So Jesus is talking about himself here, that he will not be abandoned to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a fulfillment, again, of a promise made in the Old Testament. Peter continues in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's really important. A couple of things. David here is regarded as a prophet. Uh, The king's... In those days, Saul and David also dealt with proper worship, proper teaching of the word of God, as well as ruling over the people. And though David died and was buried, being a prophet, God had given him understanding about the descendant who would be on his throne. And he foresaw and spoke about him. I mean, take a look at Psalm 22. Pierced in hands and feet. He even knew that they would be gambling for his clothes. And then, of course, David does believe in the resurrection. After his son with Bathsheba died, he said, He will not return to me, but I will go to him. And how did he know this? It was David who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, if you ask the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? You find out in 1 Peter, the Holy Spirit did. You find out that Jesus himself says he did. I can lay down my life and I can raise it up. And here we see God the Father raised him up. So the resurrection of Jesus was a combination event done by the Holy Trinity. Much like the creation of the world If you take a look at Genesis chapter 1, all three persons are in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. So there was one event that all three did not participate in, and that was the crucifixion. Only the second person of the Trinity was crucified. Jesus died. God the Father did not die. The Holy Spirit did not die. And Peter says, We're all witnesses of that. Then, verse 33 remember, this is Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. What happened at 40 days after the Passover, which occurs on a Thursday? Jesus ascended into heaven. And he now talks about that in verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in John 16, Jesus promises to send another comforter. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And that, of course, was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, it was fulfilled that he was poured out upon the people. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What David there is talking about is, of course, that... There are definitely people who are superior to him because Christ, David's son, is David's Lord. Now, he also will be in heaven. Some would suggest, well, isn't he already there in the spirit? But he did not ascend into the heavens. That will occur on the day of judgment when his body will be rejoined with the Spirit. Finally, verse 36, which is the ending of the reading uh, for this Trinity Sunday. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now the word Lord, uh, of course, is an English translation of the name of God. If you go back to Exodus and Moses says to God, what is your name? Well, my name is Yahweh, I am who I am. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, sometimes the word Lord just refers to the head of a manor, uh, the head of a farm. But when it is all capitalized with a capital L-O-R-D, that's the name of God that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai at the burning bush. Well, guess what? God the Father declares Jesus to be Lord and Christ. Now, what does Christ mean? Well, the Hebrew word for Christ is, translated into the English, is Messiah. If you go to Daniel 7, you'll find God the Father, the Ancient of Days, on a throne, and he sends to earth what's referred to as the Son of Man to redeem the world. And of course, Jesus himself uses that title, Son of Man, in speaking about himself, as do the disciples. So, Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ. That's the Greek translation for Messiah. And God made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that's where the text ends. I kind of wish it had gone on a little bit. Because after this, it says the people were cut to the heart. They were really nervous and in fear of God, wondering, how can we be saved? And Peter tells them to be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. That word baptism is in the passive, which means it's not something that they do. Like Peter doesn't say, well, sacrifice a lamb, Because that's something they would do. But to be baptized means that that's something that God is going to do. He may use people, uh, for example, as pastors, etc. But when you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you receive two gifts. The forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's how the Holy Spirit comes to believers today through holy baptism. Now, you can be a believer, and that cannot occur unless the Holy Spirit inspires you to become a believer. But to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is to receive one of the items, namely that your body becomes the temple of the Lord. And that occurs because of the Pentecost gift. And the promise is not only for you, but it's also for your children. And we cannot understand why people do not baptize their children. I mean, it's so clear here that the promise is to them also. And for all who are far off, that's referring to Gentiles. The Jews, as the chosen people of God, were near, but they were not chosen to be the only one saved. They were chosen to do the saving by proclaiming the word of God. And so even Gentiles are considered as part of Israel. And who does he include? For all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That phrase in and of itself shows the ridiculous notion that you can decide to become a Christian by inviting Christ into your heart. No, you get faith because God calls you to himself. And then in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and how many were added to the church that day? 3,000 souls. So, if you want to get my Athanasian Creed little study, email me at gospel lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. And though I will not be in the studio, I'm on assignment Tuesday and Wednesday. You will be hearing me and Mark Smith talk about the hymn assigned for Trinity Sunday on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, we'll continue the Bible study on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And God willing, I look forward to being back on Thursday. God bless.